Good, good. It's so interesting. It's always amazing to me how God coordinates things. And you go to a passage on Daniel interceding, and that's exactly what we're coming to tonight in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. University of Maryland, a number of years ago, did an interesting study on laughter. And what they discovered was that when you really laugh, when you have a good laugh, your body, of course you probably know this, releases uh, these chemicals into your bloodstream uh, that relaxes uh, your entire circulatory system. It relaxes it. It causes your uh, hemoglobin level to rise. It builds red blood cells. Isn't that fascinating? And at the same time, it brings your blood pressure down and it brings your pulse rate down. Um, so when scripture says that, um, you know, medicine is good for the body, I, I mean, laughter, joy is good like medicine for the body. It's exactly right. The word of God had it right. And the uh, University of Maryland just finally realized that after all these thousands of years. Um, and when you come to chapter 18, the, the, I say that about laughter because that's the whole thing of this chapter. Uh, it's probably the most famous laugh in all the Word of God. Uh, and you know what laugh I'm talking about. Who is it that laughs? Sarah's going to laugh. However, God's going to get the last laugh on her. Um, she's going to laugh, but uh, God's going to laugh louder when it's all said and done. Even though laughter, even though the laughing of Sarah is what everybody thinks of when you come to the 18th chapter of Genesis... It really is not about laughing. It's about God hearing. The whole of the chapter is about God hearing. Now, out of your five senses or the senses that you have, you probably would say the sense of sight is more important to you than any other. But scientists would tell you that your sense of hearing may be the greatest of all the senses that you have. Now, I want you to think about that in the spiritual sense. Think of it like this. The word of God was heard before it was ever read with the eyes. Think about that. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, my sheep read my book. No, he said, they what? They hear my voice. So he, this whole thing of hearing, you know, people today, somebody said to me, uh, yesterday, I think, I think it may have been Rebecca who made the comment. She said, I was listening. I think she said she was listening to this series. She travels a lot and she says, I listen to books. People don't ask, have you read a book anymore? They'll ask you, have you listened to a book? Because you hear books now on tape. Uh, I've begun to do that a little bit as I, as I travel. Listen to what, um, listen to what the word of God says about the coming of Christ. Before you ever see Christ in his coming to rapture the church, uh, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter five, chapter 4, th he says this, there is, Christ is going to come, there's going to be a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. You'll hear three things before you ever see anything. That's pretty fascinating. John says, he talks about this in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, he says, uh, and I heard a voice behind me, and then I turned and I saw. So hearing is uh, a very important, they say it's the last sense to go, uh, that you will hear when you are 
unconscious that people can hear. People can hear things as they're dying at the point of death. They can hear things. Their eyes may be closed. They may not sense anything else, but they still have this ability, this auditory ability to hear. Well, this whole chapter is about that. It's about God hearing. So let me just get to it and begin to show you uh, what God hears. And it's kind of interesting. There are three things in this chapter. The chapter kind of divides out into three things that God hears here. So here's here. Okay. So let me give you the first one. God hears, now this is kind of interesting, God hears the sound of disbelief. Now there are things that evidently you can hear in a spiritual dimension that you cannot hear with our physical ears. And he hears the sound of disbelief. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Now that's the fourth time God's done that to Abraham. That's the fourth time that you read that word in Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to 18-1 right here that God appeared all four times God has now appeared to Abraham. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while sitting at the door of the tent in the heat of the day when he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. Uh, now he knows somehow who this is. Uh, nobody has to come up and introduce him. Uh, nobody has to come up and say this is who this is. So who are these three people? Well, let me, let me just read on for a minute. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a piece of bread and you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. Now, let me just get you down to where I think it becomes obvious who one of these is, who one of these happens to be. Sarah's going to laugh, verse 13, and the Lord. Do you see it there? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the covenant name of God. Uh, the, tra the German transliteration that comes into English is Jehovah. In the Hebrew, it is Yahweh. This is God. There are three visitors here. One is definitely God. It is a physical manifestation of God. Now, who are the other two? Well, you know, barrels of ink and reams of paper have been written about that. Who are these other two men? Some have said, and many believe, this was the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I hate if you believe that, that's okay. Um, uh, but let me, let me just tell you, you got to deal with a little something else on into the text. You get to verse 22, and it says this, The men turned away from there, went towards Sodom, and Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So the Lord stays, and these two men go on. These other two people go on, whoever they are, but who are they? Well, if you look down in verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So it appears that this is the Lord who has appeared to Abraham, and two angels are with him. 
Now, that's the best I can do with that. I can't tell you anymore. You'll just have to wait until you get to heaven to figure the rest out. So, the Lord has come, and evidently two angels that are with him, and they come to the tent of Abraham. Now, that is fascinating to me. And when you stop and think about it, you begin to think about all the times um, Jesus shows up at somebody's house. Jesus shows up, and he lives with Peter. In fact, let me show you something in uh, Mark. Put your finger right there in um, Genesis chapter 18. Look with me at Mark chapter 3. I do this every time I take a group to Israel and we get to Capernaum. I always go to this verse and say, I think this is one of the most touching verses that you'll read in the New Testament. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus has been out. He's chosen the 12. He's been out. He's gathered the 12 with him. He brought them. He summoned them uh, to himself. Whom he wanted, the Bible says, they came to him. He appointed 12. Now, I love this too. It's in verse 14 of chapter 3 of Mark. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So he's been doing all of this work. And look, he's, uh, he's there in Capernaum. And verse 20 says this, and he came home. Now, maybe that doesn't strike you like it strikes me. But I, I, I think about the ministry of Jesus in that land always out, always ministering, giving out, pouring in to other people. And, and it's so neat that in the ministry of our Lord and Savior here on earth, he had a little home to go to. And it was Peter's home. He was in Peter's home. And Peter's mother-in-law was there, by the way. Uh, so he's in Peter's home. He's in the home of Simon uh, the leper, remember? He obviously had cured him. Uh, he goes to Matthew's home where Matthew throws a party. He's in and out of homes. You ever stop and think about this? Jesus going through Jericho, he looks up, he sees Zacchaeus up this tree, and he says to him, you know, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to your house. We're going to have a meal. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to eat with you today. The interesting thing about all of that is this to me, that there is no home so humble, no home so poor, no home so meager, so plain, so simple that Jesus won't enter into it. I just like that. In fact, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says what? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and will let me come in, I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. Now, you think about Abraham looking up. I suppose when you see the Lord, nobody will have to say, hey, that's the Lord right there. <laughs> Uh, nobody had to tell Abraham that. He looks up and he sees the Lord coming with these two angels and they come to his tent. They come to his home. I cannot imagine what that would be like. So you just think about it for a minute. You drive home down your driveway tonight and you look at your front door and if the Lord and two angels are standing there, what do you think you're going to feel like? Huh? Pretty fascinating. Here's the Lord. He comes to his house. He comes to Abraham's tent, and Abraham says, listen, let me go get some water. This is very Bedouin hospitality right here. Let me wash your feet. You rest under the tree. I'm going to get some bread cooking. You refresh yourselves. And the Lord and the angel say to him this, okay, we'll do that. That sounds good. 
That just, I can tell y'all are blown away. I'm blown away with it. So Abraham hurried to the tent, to Sarah. He said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, make and make bread cakes. And listen, let me tell you, the bread over there is just incredible. They've got this bread that they make in just kind of in a, in a, in a loop, in a big circle. It, and, you know, it's like, and it's got sesame seeds all over it. Oh, and they bring it out in the morning. And if you're going through the old city early in the morning, you can buy one of those. And, ooh, it's good. So he, he tells her, bake some of that bread. He ran to the herd, and he took a tender and choice calf, and he gave it to the servants, and he said, prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf. So they had some yogurt, and they had some milk, and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Now, that's the setting here. That's the whole setting. Here's God. God has shown up. And Abraham is going to give him that great, uh, well-known Bedouin hospitality. And so he feeds him there. And then the Lord asks the question, verse 9, where is Sarah, your wife? She's eavesdropping in the tent. That's what she's doing. That's where she is. And Abraham said, there in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening. I told you, she's sitting there eavesdropping on what was going on, listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. So when she hears this, now listen to what she does. She laughs. She laughs. And she says... Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? That's just going to be impossible. That's not, that's not even possible. I'm too old. I'm, I'm past that age. And she laughs at it. Now, just set that to the side for a minute. And let me take you back to chapter 17 because God's already told this to Abraham. Chapter 17, verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you remember they had this thing all messed up. You know, Abraham starts whining about uh, Eleazar. Well, he's going to be the one. He'll just be my son. I'll just take him and he'll inherit. And so then they go through this whole rigmarole with Hagar because God says, no, one from your own body. So Sarah's got it figured out. You just take Hagar, have a child by her. That, you know, then I'll just raise him as my own, as our own. But things just go south really fast, really fast. So God comes to him and he says, no, Abraham, listen, will you, keep, will you just listen to me? I told you you're going to have a child. That means you and it means Sarah, the two of you together are going to have this child. I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be a mother of nations. King of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell on his face. I bet that hurt. He fell on his face and laughed. Now, he laughs and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now, I'm going to tell you, there is a difference between the laugh of Abraham, and nobody ever talks about that, and the laugh of Sarah, which everybody, that's the whole thing you know about Sarah. The laugh of Abraham is this. Listen to what he says. 
he says, he, he falls down and he laughs and he says, will a child be born to a man that's 100 years old? And Sarah, who is 90 years old, Lord, in our day, we loved each other. And it was fun. It was great. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the gift of sex in marriage. It was great, but we ain't got no energy anymore. We, we can't do that. We're beyond this point. And it's funny to him. I think, however, in all honesty, it is a laugh of relief. I think it's a joy of relief in Abraham's life. I think it is a laugh of one more time the two of us will express our love and God's going to work through that. I think it's totally different than what you come to in chapter 18. Abraham doesn't deny that he laughs over here. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no, no, no. It's going to be Sarah. The two of y'all are going to have a child. Well, here you get to Sarah. Now, the interesting thing here is this. It's a laugh of disbelief. God hears it. Now, the interesting thing is this, and let me show you this in the text. In the text, you need to see this, that the Lord not only hears what you say, the Lord hears what you think. Because she never said this out loud. Look at the text. Sarah laughed to herself. Do you have a margin note on that in your Bible? It says within. The Hebrew there literally means she laughed within herself. Not out loud where anybody could hear. She was doing this internally. She's thinking this. After I've become old, shall I have pleasure with my Lord being old also? This is just not possible. And she's doing this all on the inside. She's thinking this. This is what she's saying to herself. Let me take you to Psalm 139 and listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 139, and I think I'll begin reading with verse 1. Just, just listen to this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, that, that says a lot right there. God knows you, and he knows you inside and out. You have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, that's all the external. But now watch this. You understand my thought from afar. You can't say a word. And what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 12? He says, behold, I tell you that every careless word that someone says, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. That's a word heard. But now you come to a word thought. Here, she thinks this to herself. You can't hide what you think from God. She laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Now watch this. God knew exactly what she, what she did. Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she laugh? Saying, shall I indeed bear a child? God knew exactly what she was thinking. Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? This is impossible. You can't do this. I'm beyond that age. That, that was over years ago. 
That was done long time ago. Jesus, God quotes her precisely right here. And then he adds this, is anything too difficult for the Lord? God confronts her unbelief. Now, I want to tell you, this tells us a great deal about Sarah. It tells us a great deal about her personally. It tells us a great deal about where she is spiritually. And now she's going to lie about it. She denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. You didn't hear me. I didn't laugh. Nobody was in here laughing, for she was afraid. And he said, nope. You did laugh. God comes and he hears the sound of disbelief even when it is only down in our heart. And he will confront us with the disbelief. Now, let me tell you something. He does that. Now, listen, the, the New Testament's going to talk about the greatness of Sarah. She was a great woman. Uh, she is... Uh, she becomes the mother, as the Lord has said. She becomes the mother of a whole nation. She becomes the mother of kings. She becomes the mother of priests. She was a great woman. There are times when God himself will come and confront those deep disbeliefs that we have down in our lives. Do I really trust what God says? Now, this is a believer this is a believer. We're not talking about an unbeliever here. So God hears our disbelief. Now let me give you the second thing, which it becomes even a little more, to me, a little more bizarre. What you come to next is this, is you're going to come to the fact that God hears the sound of sin. He not only hears disbelief, but he hears the sound of sin. Well, it's almost a turning now away from Abraham and Sarah and that whole thing there. Um, and he comes in verse 20, and the Lord said, the outcome, outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Now, what he says right there is this. He hears sin crying out. I, I looked that word up, and looking at that word up, it, it it means really a, a crying out, a screaming out. It uh, can describe uh, a cacophony, you know, a, a whole a, a sound of, of a lot of turmoil going on. Sin makes a sound. Did you know blood makes a sound? Over and over, you'll read in Scripture that blood cries out to the Lord. There are things that we can't hear in the physical world that obviously in a spiritual dimension you can hear. And I take this quite literally because the Lord states it that way. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. It is a loud call. It is a loud cry. Their sin is exceedingly grave. Sodom and Gomorrah were too incorrigible civilizations, you would say. They were city-states. They were city-nations. And they were very incorrigible. You know, Alcatraz was built for that very purpose. 
when they got guys that would not be reformed, when they got guys that would not be repentant, when they got guys that were just incorrigible, they would not change, they'd put them in Alcatraz. Well, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. They were full. Their wickedness, the Bible says, was great. In fact, it says it was grave. It was very serious. There was a moral wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah that is absolutely indescribable. They were as immoral as, as the mind could possibly get. They were brutal. They were immoral. They were wicked. And if I deal with this honestly, you'll see this when we come to chapter 19, uh, there was the issue of homosexuality. Now, I've got, I have to, if I'm going to be honest with this, I have to deal with that right at this point. I'll deal more with it uh, probably next week when we get into chapter 19. But that was one of the sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were known for. There are other places, you know, New Orleans is known for burlesque shows or what I don't, whatever you call them, you know, burlesque shows down Bourbon Street. It's known for that. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah were known for. They were known to be cities that had given themselves to homosexuality. Now, let me, let me just talk about this for just a moment. You say, well, is that a sin? Is it not a sin? Well, number one, it's a sin. And I, I, can't, I, don't, I, don't, I can't help what the Supreme Court says or what Congress says or what Oprah says or what Dr. Phil says. I don't give a flying flip. And I'm not out to make anybody mad. It's a sin. So is adultery. So is pornography. So is greed. So is pride. This happens to be the sin that these cities were known. Now, there are a number of gay theologians, they call themselves, and liberal theologians that write and say, no, that was not the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to tell you something. The Word of God... Uh, means what it says. You can pretty well take what it says um, at face value. And that was the great sin that was here. Now, homosexuality is like every other sin. Uh, it is sin. Uh, it has its own set of consequences. Not all sin, all sin is sin, but not all sin has the same type of consequences. Not all sin has the same type of outcome, but it is sin before God. And that, I don't know what else to do with it. You say, when a people, what a, you know, pastor, what about people who um, uh, struggle with homosexuality? Well, what about people that struggle with all the other sins? We're sinners. We live in this body of flesh. I didn't get to choose what tempts me. There are certain things that don't hold any temptation. I have no temptation at all to gamble, play the lottery, do anything. That doesn't even hold anything. You say, well, what does? I ain't going to tell you. <laughs> but I didn't get to choose it. You, don't get, you stop and think about this. You don't get to choose what is the temptation in your life. And you say, well, what about people who struggle with, with um, same-sex attraction? Well, what about people who struggle with... Uh, Thoughts of lust. It's, it, temptation is not the sin. It's when you yield to it that it becomes the sin. Things may tempt you, but until you cross that, that line into, 
into the sin, you commit the sin. It's not, you know, you're, God doesn't hold you accountable for what you're tempted by. Is that clear? You understand that? There are people, listen, I take very seriously people that struggle with same-sex attraction. Okay, we all struggle with sin. Uh, that doesn't mean that that is unique in and of itself. We all struggle with sin. So that is part of the sin. I'll look at that a little closer next week, I, I think. But here you go. God says, I hear this. There is this cry. It comes up to me, and I'm hearing it, and it is grave. And in verse 21, now listen to how the Lord speaks here. I will go down as if God's not already there. And see, if God doesn't already see, if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. Do you see the capital M there? All sin comes up before God. By the way, your sin is against God himself. Every sin uh, that we commit is against God and comes up before God. He says, it has come up to me. And if not, I will know, as if he doesn't already know. Now, let me just talk to you about that for just a moment because that's kind of interesting. He's talking about judgment on these two cities. He's talking about, really, destruction of these two cities. And he says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to see so that I will know. God never brings judgment on anyone indiscriminately. He doesn't do it just at a whim. God always knows the issue. And he never brings judgment unless it is just. And by the way, God had already brought judgment. You said, well, how did God reach out to him? Yes, he had reached out to him. You've already read about that. God had already poured it. You realize that judgment is an act of God's love to begin with. God had already judged them once. Do you remember when the kings came and took all the people into captivity and defeated them in battle and stole everything that they had? You remember that? That was God saying, wake up. Wake up. What's going on here is serious. And what did God do? God sent his man, Abraham, to rescue who? To rescue all these people who had been sinning down inside them. God sent Abraham to rescue them. What is that other than God saying, here's my mercy, here's my grace, here's my goodness, here's my patience. He not only rescued them, but he rescued every dime that they had lost. Every piece of gold, every piece of silver, every piece of material possession. The king of Sodom comes to Abraham and he says, you keep 10% of it for yourself because of what you've done. And Abraham says, I'm not going to keep a shoestring from you guys. You take it and go. All of it's yours. Go. God gave them back everything that had been taken away. Now, God pours out judgment on them when those kings come and defeat them and take them off into captivity and steal everything they've got. And then God sends his man to get them back and rescue them and to recover all of their material possessions. Don't you think at that point they would have said, you know what? 
We just ought to give up this life of sin and worship God. But what did they do? They continued to exceed in their sin. How many times has God, <laughs> how many times has God pulled your fat out the fire and you turn right back around and go back to the same thing? Oh, Lord help us. Well, that's what he's done. He's cared for them. He's watched over them. And he has done everything that he can do for them there. And yet he says this, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, that's a fascinating thought to me. I've flown over some of the great cities. of. The, I've flown over St. Petersburg and Paris and London and um, Edinburgh and Tokyo and Manila and Hong Kong and San Francisco and L.A. and New York and, you know, Hoover and all the great cities. I've, I've never heard them say a word. Never heard them say a word. But somehow in the spiritual dimension, here comes this outcry. What is the outcry? It's this. It's every time a child is abused, that cry goes up before God. Every time a woman is mistreated and misused and abused, that cry goes up before God. Every time one of our older, senior adults are ignored and lonely, that cry goes up before God. That's what he's talking about there. God hears the sound of disbelief, and God hears the outcry of sin. You're depressed enough? Well, you get to verse 22. God hears the prayer of intercession. Now you come to the heart of this. God's going to hear Abraham as he intercedes. Daniel was interceding. In the ninth chapter of Daniel, as Barry read that just a few moments ago, he was interceding for the city of Jerusalem and the people of God that were in captivity because he had gone back and was reading the scroll of Jeremiah and read in Jeremiah where God said 70 years um, the people would be in captivity and then they would be released. Daniel added up the time that they had been there and they had been there 67, 68, 69 years at that point in time. And now Daniel is going and he's interceding for these Jews that are in Babylonian captivity and he's interceding for the city of Jerusalem and he's saying, God, fulfill your word, keep your word and let your people go back to Jerusalem. That's what he's doing. He's interceding. And do you know what? Daniel is almost 90 years old at this time and he'll never go back. He'll never go back to Jerusalem. He'll never get out of Babylon. He'll spend all of his life there in Babylon, but he's interceding for another generation. Boy, that convicts me. I don't, I don't have, well, I've got grandkids, but I don't have a child in the children's ministry. I don't have a child in the youth ministry. I don't have a young adult here in this church that's in the singles ministry, but you know what? I want to pray for them and intercede for them. I want that next generation. I want it. And I want to pray for it, just like Daniel prayed and interceded there. That's what Abraham is doing right here. He's going to intercede for these people that are this wicked. And he's really praying for Lot and all of Lot's family. And so it comes. Here you go. God hears this. 
Then the men turned away from there, and they went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And he came near, and he said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Now, he's going to begin in this place to intercede, and I'm going to give you three principles of intercession right here. Now, there are many, many more. I'm just going to give you three that I find in the text. Number one, he's going to intercede based on the character of God. Listen to what he does now in verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you shall not. Now watch, here it is. He's now appealing to the nature and the character of God. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? He says, God, you are the judge of everything that there is. You're God of all. He said, if you do this, this is going to be horrible. What will people say? What will they say about you and your justice? You remember when Moses did this with God? He comes down off the mountain. He breaks the Ten Commandments because he's so furious with Israel. They have made the golden calf, and they're worshiping the golden calf. And he gets down there. You remember Moses gets it all straightened out, and God comes in his anger, and he says to Moses, now get out the way because I'm going to wipe them out, and I'll start over with you. And Moses says, no, God, you can't do that. He says, what will the Egyptians think? Do you remember when Joshua did this at the Battle of Ai? They get defeated at the Battle of Ai. And it's because there's sin in the camp. Achan has stolen a bar of gold and some clothes, and they get, you know, Joshua didn't know it, and so he's before God. He says, oh, God, oh, God, what's going to happen? What are the Canaanites going to think about this? It's what Abraham is doing right here. He says, God, you're just so. What he does is now he begins to appeal now to the glory of God, to the nature of God, to the character of God. He says, God, you are just. You are righteous. You don't do things that are not righteous and that are not just. And so here, he just appeals to God's nature. He appeals to his character. When I intercede and when I pray for someone else, when I'm praying for another person, I don't come and pray based on me. I come and I call out based on the character of God. At invitation time at this church, whenever I stand there, I am constantly praying at the invitation time, asking God to do something out of his glory, for his glory, for his name's sake, based on who he is, in order that in this city and as far as it goes out, his name will be praised. Whenever you go before God, go before God based on his character and his nature and call out on him. Are y'all okay tonight? Why are y'all so quiet? Number two, let me give you the second thing. He intercedes in humility. Now watch it, what he does here. So the Lord said, if I find 50 uh, righteous within the city, I'll spare the whole place on their account. Now he comes in humility, and Abraham replied, Now behold, I ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Now he comes to the Lord, and he says, God, 
I'm nothing. I am nothing before you. Here is the humility of his heart. Here's the humility. He doesn't come, Lord, I have followed you all these years out of earth to this place. You kind of owe me something, God. You know, God, I have served on every committee in the church and I've chaired this and I've chaired that. I have missed all kind of events, you know, I've been coming to meetings at the church. I've not been able to go to. I have tithed here at this place for all these years. And he, come, he doesn't do that. He comes and he says, God, I am nothing but dust and ashes. There's a humility there. He comes to pray in humility. But now look at this, number three. He comes to pray with persistence. You begin to read this. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him yet again, and he said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I won't do it on the account of 40. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I won't do it if I find 30. And he said, now behold, I ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose there are 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. This is my last shot. I'll speak only this one. I won't say anything else. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. God answered him, answered him, answered him, answered him, and answered him. He interceded. Now, let me tell you two things that are not happening here that everybody thinks is going on. Number one, Abraham is not badgering God. You do not get from God what a spoiled child uh, gets when he whimpers and cries and whines and pleads and throws one little fit and throws another little fit and throws another little fit and mom gives in, dad gives in. That's not what's going on. He's not badgering God. He's persisting in his prayer. And by the way, God calls for that. The second thing that he's not doing here is he's not bargaining with God. How many times did we use that expression? I've used it too as well, you know, that Abraham bargained with God. No, he didn't. You don't bargain with God. God is not like some Middle Eastern, um, um, you know, cloth merchant where you go in and you just bargain down to the lowest price. That's not what's going on. He's persisting in his praying here. He persists because God calls us to persist in prayer. Why? Why does God want us to keep coming back to him and coming back to him and coming back to him? There's something about the mystery of God. There's something about the mystery of prayer. There's something about what God is trying to do in us when we keep going back and going back and going back to prayer. And I'm going to show it to you right here. Look back up to verse 23. Abraham came near and said. That's what God wants. That's why he wants us to persist. It's not because he doesn't hear you. It's not because he's ignoring you. It's not because he can't figure out what it is you're praying for. It's because God 
wants you to come near. Persist. Come near. If I keep going back to God, God keeps drawing me back to himself, drawing me back. I get nearer and nearer, and I begin to understand something about God in my prayer life. I begin to learn something about God while I'm praying. I begin to understand that if I draw near to God, James says, James 4, 8, he'll draw near to me. He's learning something about talking to God. He's learning something about what is God showing him here? But his mercy, well, I won't do it for 45. Well, what about, you know, what about 30? I won't do it for 30. Well, what about 20? I won't do it for 20. He's, he's learning God is, God is a merciful God. God is a patient God. God is a great, wonderful God. He's a loving God. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of grace. And let me tell you something. It's kind of interesting to me, and I see this here, and you're going to see it elsewhere, that God does something in the life of those who are lost because his people keep coming to God. I think Lot and his two daughters are saved out of this only because of the prayer of Abraham. What about, what about Jacob and Laban? Laban was as idol-worshiping pagan as you can get. And yet as Jacob is there with Laban for all that time, all of the flocks of Laban are growing and expanding, and Laban is becoming wealthy. What about Potiphar with Joseph there? Joseph's living in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar was blessed because of Joseph. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, where we're told that the unbelieving partner in a marriage is sanctified through the believing mate? In other words, that's that partner that's unbelieving in a marriage, when he or she is married to a believer, all the blessings of God keep splashing out over on them as well. Do you realize, do you realize how those around you God may be blessing because you're praying? You may not be aware of it, and I can tell you they're not aware of it. But those around you, I am convinced, we're not on the radio, are we? We're not on live stream or I am convinced that her brother is blessed in the midst of having MS and all that he's going through because of the prayers of this girl right here. I'm convinced of it. And God has blessed his life and blessed his life and blessed his life. And I am certain it's because of her and her prayers. Now here's the thing, and I'll close with this. I'll just close and ask you this. What if Abraham had persisted a little more? You ever think about that in your own life? What, what if I had persisted a little longer in prayer? I can tell you this tonight. I believe that America is still here unscathed tonight because of the prayers of a small remnant of the people of God that still live in this land. I think is the only thing that has kept us from the abyss. I honestly do. 
What if we persist in praying for our church? What do you think God will do? If we'll just persist, 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 and pray and seek God, he'll hear. I promise you that. He'll hear. Let's stand and pray.